genealogy. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the technology used to sequence the genome of Neanderthal and this Denisovan individual and uh, what we have learned from doing that. So um, before I start, I just uh, show the pictures and names of uh, many of the uh, key players in this. The, uh, collecting these data has really been kind of the lifelong project of this visionary, Svante Pabo, who um, was one of the first to imagine that DNA might stick around in very, very old uh, fossil material and um, invented many of the ways of getting that DNA out and uh, sequencing it and many of the other people who uh, helped in analyses along the way. So um, Neanderthals by now need no introduction. They were uh, morphologically very similar to us, um, uh, yet distinct enough that um, uh, from the early days it was known that they were something different. They have uh, many, many distinguishing characteristics that uh, other experts here could go over uh, in great detail. Um, I just want to put this in some context that uh, if we look morphologically at the crania of uh, Neanderthals and a nearly contemporaneous uh, uh, modern human compared to our closest living relative, the chimpanzee, one can probably find many more similarities here than differences if you put it in context with this outgroup, the chimpanzee. Um, so Neanderthals show up, classical Neanderthals that everyone would agree is a Neanderthal, maybe a few hundred thousand years ago, and they disappear mysteriously from the fossil record about 30,000 years ago. They um, are known mainly from their bones and their stone tool technology from Europe and the Middle East, but we know their range extends into Asia, and um, I agree that um, it is really an open question how far to the east that they went. Perhaps one day we will find Neanderthals from China. I would not at all be surprised uh, by that. Sequencing their genomes has largely uh, been a success story that follows on the heels of advances in high throughput sequencing. There are several companies now that will sell you machines that will sequence DNA hundreds of thousands of times faster and cheaper than what we could do 10 years ago. One of these companies, Illumina, is kind of the leader um, in the field now. They are based here in San Diego and are pretty much the, the world leader in this DNA sequencing technology. And um, it's what we uh, largely use to sequence DNA that comes out of old bones. So the first uh, really genome scale data set from Neanderthals came from these three bones that um, were dated to about 38,000 years ago that were excavated from this cave, the Vindia Cave in Croatia in 1980. They were chosen from amongst hundreds of bones that Svante and his co-workers had screened through to look for the presence of some surviving DNA and the absence of contaminating modern human DNA, which is a, a large problem with bones that have, after all, been touched by many people who go and dig them out of the ground and uh, museum curators who handle them. So these were found to be largely free of contaminating modern human DNA and have lots of DNA that can be sequenced. So a few years ago, we um, accumulated a little over one billion base pairs from each of those three bones and a little bit of DNA from some other bones so that on average we had a little more than one full coverage of the genome 
of the Neanderthal. Um, one immediate surprise from this data set was that when one sequences all of the DNA that comes out of an old bone, very little of it is actually from Neanderthal at all. Most of it, identified by sequence similarity, is likely from soil-living microbes that have colonized the bone in the time that it's been sitting in the ground. And in fact, most of those microbes we've never sequenced, so we don't see any similarity in terms of DNA sequence. So we can just assume these are are some microbes that lived long ago in the past, and we focus really on the things that look like primate, look like a Neanderthal. So another thing that we have known for some time is that DNA, as it's sitting around for tens of thousands of years, it sustains chemical damage, and this is the main chemical damage that happens. Cytosine will spontaneously deaminate to uracil, so it's chemically different, and then the polymerases, the enzyme that we use to read the DNA, will read this uracil as a thymidine. So where this Neanderthal, when he was alive, walking around, had a cytosine, we will read this often as thymidine. Um, this process is happening all the time. It happens in your cells. It's happening right now, but we have um, energy-dependent repair mechanisms that will detect this cytosine deamination and fix it. They're not perfect, but they're um, good enough to keep us alive through our uh, lifetime. But as soon as we die, this process goes on unchecked and cytosine accumulates damage so that the longer the DNA has been sitting in the ground, the more we will see this C to T difference. We were able to see early on as we started to accumulate data that this C to T damage pattern was concentrated on the ends of reeds and learned a lot about the process of diagenesis, how the DNA changes over time. The spatial pattern wound up being very important to learn about. And so once we had learned what we could learn from that, we started doing data analysis. And this is um, a figure of uh, a broad scale view of the genetic difference between Neanderthal, human, and chimpanzee. So we have a reference human genome. We know there's DNA sequence variation amongst human, but the reference sequence, the one that we have known in, in some form for about 10 years now, is what we all use to compare other humans that we might sequence, to see where they are different from this reference, this one instance of the human genome. We have something similar for the chimpanzee. So if we just align the Neanderthal, the human, the reference human and the reference chimpanzee, we can ask for each of the three bones, where do we see some difference? Where is the chimpanzee difference and the Neanderthal and the human are the same? Or where is the Neanderthal different and the human and the chimpanzee are the same? Or where is the human different where the Neanderthal and the chimp are the same? And one thing that kind of stands out um, and in each of these bar charts, I'm just showing what the difference is. So for example, here, the um, Neanderthal and the human have a G, but the chimpanzee has an A. So doing this kind of analysis, you can see that these types of differences happen faster than these types. These are transitions. These are transversions. This is a description of molecular evolution. These things happen faster than these things. The same pattern is here over in the differences that are just specific to human, but the Neanderthal pattern is very, very different. We see this huge excess of G to A and C to T, as we know to expect from DNA that has been damaged. So in this first data set that we published um, a little over two years ago now, it was the case that what we could learn about um, human evolution from Neanderthal DNA was nothing really about this lineage here, nothing about Neanderthals themselves. And that's because 
we know that most of the differences that are specific to Neanderthals are in fact errors. They're errors in the DNA that have accumulated while the DNA was sitting in the ground, or they're the machine error, the background sequencing error that we have when we are sequencing DNA. And having only one fold coverage of the genome, it's rife with errors. So we see um, something like 130,000 transversions on this lineage and only 30,000 on the human lineage. And we know that we should accumulate basically the same amount of differences, yet there's this huge excess over on the Neanderthal side. So at that point, what we could do with the Neanderthal genome is really define this point here. That is, find the positions where the Neanderthal matches the chimpanzee, but the human is different. That is, ask what changes have happened in the human genome since we diverged from Neanderthal. But all of the questions about specific changes in Neanderthal would have to wait uh, better technology, which, skipping ahead a little bit, has come online, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but before I start talking about the, the contrast that we want to make between Neanderthals and humans and answering the questions we can answer with Neanderthal DNA, I'm going to do a, a very brief primer on genetics and sexually reproducing um, diploids like us. Um, if you imagine yourself as the current generation, um, which I used to do, um, less and less I do, but um, you're in the current generation here, you have, you know, you get your uh, genome, two copies of the genome, one copy you get from your father and one copy you get from your mother. So of each of your chromosome pairs, one of those pairs came directly from the sperm in your dad and one from the individual egg in your mom that would eventually yield you. Um, what you may not uh, uh, know or think about all the time is that that chromosome that your dad bequeathed to you or your mom bequeathed to you did not exist in your dad or your mom. It was a special version of the two chromosomes that existed in your dad or your mom that were recombined together, stitched together, and put in that single sperm that would become you or that single egg that would become you. And each sperm and each egg are different. That's why brothers and sisters are different. So um, this recombination denoted by the little X here um, shows that this chromosome inherited from the father has the front tip here from the chromosome that he got from his mother and the back part from the chromosome that he got from his father. So in you, the current generation is the, the physically melded manifestation, not of your parents, but of your grandparents. So um, this is um, the father's chromosome, which is the father's mother stitched to the father's father in a single chromosome. So this happens, this process happens um, more or less in a random place along the chromosome in every generation. So if one is to trace one's ancestry back in time, there is in fact a different ancestry at every place in the genome. Every place in your genome traces back a different path through your ancestors. So if you are to ask, um, for example, where did I say there's a, a gene here for a very wide nose like I have? So this uh, wide nose gene is here. Um, maybe I got this from my father who got it, if it's in this yellow region, from his father who got it from his mother, if the, uh, the female is on bottom here. Well, where in my genome is that gene from my father's mother? 
It's not there. I didn't get anything in my genome there from my father's mother. My father's mother is missing in my ancestry for that gene. Maybe some other gene I did get something from my father's mother. So this makes um, reconstructing ancestry very, very difficult. It also means that if you compare any two people who are alive today and ask where and when in the past did they have a common ancestor? Who was that individual who gave DNA to the two people who we're comparing now? There is always a person who was that common ancestor, but as you move across the genome from place to place, that person who had the DNA that would eventually be inherited in the two people you're comparing now, that will be a different person who may have lived in a completely different part of the world, hundreds of thousands of years different in time. So these genealogies go back in time, sometimes very shallow, sometimes very, very deep. That's just the reality of the uh, population genetics within humans or any sexually reproducing diploid species. Okay, so with this in mind, we can ask how long ago in the past, on average, do two humans have a common ancestor at a random place in the genome? And this turns out to be, for humans, something like 450,000 years ago in the past. Okay, so um, it's 450,000 years ago, plus or minus about 450,000 years ago, um, which is funny, but it's also true. This is a Poisson process. The mean and the variance are the same. So it, it really could be much, much more recent. It is much more recent in some places and much, much deeper in other places. Um, and we can say now with Neanderthal genome, the average coalescent between a human and a Neanderthal was something over 800,000 years ago in the past, okay? But we know from various lines of evidence that the population split that would lead to humans on one hand and Neanderthals on the other hand from this ancestral population that the Chris Stringer might call Homo heidelbergensis, uh, something like this, this common ancestor population, it wasn't a single individual, it was a population that had its own genetic uh, variation. And something like 300,000 years ago, this variation would be split off into one population that would become us and into another population that would become Neanderthals. So what this means is these random genealogies that go back in time, they often predate the population split that would lead to humans and Neanderthals. So the variation that's alive today within us was already alive in that common ancestor population and was alive within Neanderthals up until the time that they went extinct. So one implication of this is that there are many places in the genome where you may have a common ancestor with a Neanderthal more recently than you have a common ancestor with another human. In fact, we think this is true for about 85% of the genome, that Neanderthals fall within the variation at a, through about 85% of the genome. Okay? So that means that we share variation with Neanderthals for a seemingly uninteresting reason that they fall within our gene trees. We're that closely related to them that we might share, I might have an A where a Neanderthal has an A because of that mutation happened in a common ancestor and someone else doesn't have an A because their common ancestor was longer ago in the past and didn't have that mutation. Somewhere else in the genome, maybe um, they're more closely related to a Neanderthal than me, okay? So this is the backdrop against which we must compare human diversity to understand how we are different from Neanderthals. So this process, being random, sometimes I'm more closely related to a Neanderthal than you, sometimes you more than me, it is random, and the 
um, the, the expectation is that if this completely random process is going on, then over the entire genome, I will be more closely related to a Neanderthal than you exactly as often as you are more closely related to a Neanderthal than me. As long as they are a clean outgroup to all humans, we're all dis the equally distantly related to Neanderthals. So um, to test this hypothesis, um, we sequence a genome of five individuals from around the world, two from Africa, uh, three from outside of Africa, from the places shown there. One can ask along the genome, locally along the genome, how different it are the three Neanderthals in orange and yellow here, or the five humans that we sequence to the reference human genome, this one instance of the human genome. And this difference, and the units here are as a percentage of the way back to chimpanzee, this difference has a distribution because of that random coalescent process. Sometimes two people are very different, and the, you get a segment that's way out here, sometimes they're very uh, similar, but on average the Neanderthals are more distant to the reference human than any human is to the reference human. But that summary, uh, it turns out, hides a lot of very important and interesting details. So in an analysis um, devised by Nick Patterson and uh, David Reich, this very simple comparison, we can ask this question, are any two people that we compare equally dissimilar to a Neanderthal. So if we find a place, all the places, in fact, genome-wide, where the West African and the French guy have a genetic difference, maybe this guy, the West African, has a T and the French guy has a G, what does the Neanderthal have? If Neanderthals are a clean outgroup, it should be 50-50, sometimes matching the West African and sometimes matching the French guy. Um, the, the observation was that when one compares two Africans, the result is statistically indistinguishable from 50-50. Furthermore, if you compare um, two of the non-Africans, the result is also statistically indistinguishable from 50-50. But any comparison between an African and a non-African showed excess allele matching of the non-African to the Neanderthal. And this, then, um, is a summary of this. All of these guys are basically the same in increased Neanderthal allele matching, and these guys are the same, but any comparison across them shows excess here. So from this, um, we devised the, the parsimonious model that when humans migrated out of Africa maybe 70 or 80,000 years ago and first came into the Neanderthal territory, there was a, an episode of admixture, and this group of individuals would then colonize the rest of Eurasia and bring 1% to 4% of this Neanderthal um, ancestry with them. So that was um, an interesting story and kind of how things stood for a few months until um, <laughs> a bone from this cave was discovered with remarkably well-preserved DNA. There were some uh, technological improvements that um, removed this uh, uh, base damage at the end so that from the Denisova compared to the Vindia Neanderthals, we get really, really clean data and could do a lot more with it. It looks very similar to the Vindi in terms of divergence. If you make a tree, the Denisova sits in a really weird place. It's a sister group to the Neanderthals, an outgroup to humans, um, but it's genetically more distinct from Neanderthals than any two human are today. 
And there's this really, really odd signal of increased allele matching from individuals in Papua New Guinea. This has been investigated more, and this signal seems to locate east of the Wallace line. It's present in uh, uh, Australians and people from uh, this region and, and largely absent from mainland Asia. Um, technology keeps getting better. Um, this guy, Matthias Meyer, had the imagination to think that DNA might actually be single-stranded from these bones and devised a method of, of pulling down single-stranded DNA, not just double-stranded DNA, and was able to increase the yield from this Denisova bone many, many times over and get DNA genome from the Denisova of about 30-fold coverage. This allows one to pretty much ring out all the errors. Every base you get to see on average 30 times. And now, instead of having an excess branch leading to the archaic group, you have a shorter branch, which is in fact what one would uh, anticipate if this individual has been dead for long enough the evolution that continues through every generation, these accumulation of mutations, the clock stopped on this individual. And he's missing, um, we estimate, somewhere between 74 and 80,000 years of molecular evolution, which presents a new way to date uh, bones, just from the missing DNA sequence mutation within it. Um, uh, I'm running out of time, but I just want to uh, finish up with this one last thing. Um, as I mentioned, you have two copies of the genome, the one that mother and father gave, and every place in the genome tells a different evolutionary story, a different TMRCA. This means that within the genome of a single individual, one can answer lots of questions about the whole of human evolutionary history. And in fact, you can look at the local density of heterozygous sites, places where your mom was different from your dad, and infer how long ago their common ancestor was across the genome, and make these plots in a very creative use of genetic data that say, through the past, how big was the population size um, that led to various individuals here, including the Denisova. And one outcome of this was that the Denisovan sample um, uh, seemed to indicate that not only um, did they eventually go extinct, but their effective population size, the amount of diversity that they were carrying, had been low for a long, long time. So this population, um, the population size of whatever group this individual belonged to was um, low um, and likely struggling for quite some time up until the point when they eventually disappeared. So um, I will um, just end with some questions. There are a lot of great answers from you know, ancient DNA, but they uh, propose new questions. And one of them that is really a hot open question is this one episode of admixture that we have here with a rather crude method asking how much allele matching is there, does that hide details that might be interesting? Might there have been subsequent episodes of admixture in the long time that humans um, coexisted with Neanderthals? Who were these Denisovans? We have a single uh, pinky bone and a molar. We know very little about them morphologically. We don't know their range. We know that their DNA winds up in people who live very, very far away from the cave where this bone was found. And finally, were there other archaics that were involved in ancient admixture events? So, thank you.